BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at SupChina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Each week in the intro to this show, I mention how SupChina has lots of original writing, including regular columns, and we've got some great ones. Yang Yang Cheng, alas, is not writing her excellent Science in the Divide column these days, but the ones she wrote up until last year are certainly worth revisiting. Uh, we've added a bunch of new columns recently, including Jeremy's interview series called Invited to Tea, uh, a sports column by Jerry Harker, Andrew Methvin's Phrase of the Week, and great regular book reviews by Mike McCormick. All of this is, of course, in addition to stalwarts like Darren Byler's often quite heartbreaking column on Xinjiang. But if I had to pick my very favorite of our columns, I'd have to give the golden apple to Jay Carter, who writes This Week in China's History. So this week on Seneca, in observance of two full years of delivering us a great column every single week, I have asked Jay to join me to talk about his amazing contributions to SupChina and, more importantly, to popular understandings of Chinese history. James Carter is professor of history at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia and recently became dean of the College of Arts and Sciences there. He is the author of the outstanding book, Champions Day, The End of Old Shanghai, which uh, Jeremy and I interviewed him about back in December of 2020, and of some other great books, including Heart of Buddha, Heart of China, The Life of Tan Xu, a 20th century monk, and Creating a Chinese Harbin, Nationalism in an International City, 1916-1932. Jay Carter, welcome back to Seneca, man. Great to see you. Uh, it's really my pleasure. I'm uh, I'm humbled and, and honored to be here. So looking forward to the conversation. Oh, yeah, it's going to be a fun one. Um, you know, Jay, I, I would put you in a, a category inhabited by, you know, a few other historians and other social scientists who work on China. 
people who kind of deliberately set out to address a non-specialist audience and to get their voice out there. Some of them do this work by engaging, you know, with the media frequently on topics that matter to them a lot. I think of Jim Millward on the, the topic of the repression of the Uyghurs, for example, uh, or people like Maria Repnikova, who was recently on the show, who's been writing quite a bit about China in the Ukraine war and publishing in, you know, really respectable, uh, widely cited mainstream outlets. Others, I think everyone would, would immediately go right to Jeff Wasserstrom at, at UC Irvine or people like Rana Mitter at Oxford. Uh, they do this work through various media. They bring their historical expertise to the current popular discourse on China uh, in really good, nuanced ways. I, I've talked many times before how you know, the National Committee uh, has this public intellectuals program, which is also all about the same mission. But your approach, Jay, is pretty unique. Uh, by its very nature, your column, which is This Week in China's History, you've written about a 100 of them now in the two years since you started, uh, it has you covering a really huge swath of China's history. Uh, it's not just focused on any specific issue at all and seems to have like a, a broader, more general pedagogical goal. Uh, at the end of your very first column, actually, you, you wrote about this by, uh, by way of introduction to the series to come. You wrote, a lot of these stories will be the retelling of history for its own sake, human stories that simply demand to be remembered. And for sure, you know, I really love those. But at the same time, you go on, historians are always looking for ways the past can help make sense of the present. Perhaps business people, politicians, and voters around the world, all of whom will need to evolve their understanding of China in the years to come, will find perspective or instruction from China's history, which includes more than a few phases of opening and closing to the world for alternatingly opportunistic or defensive motives. It's foolish, this is useful. It's foolish to think that history repeats itself, though sometimes there are clear lessons in the past to learn and apply to today's world. More often, the mistakes and successes of earlier times will give us ways to see our current world with a bit of perspective. I think that's great. I mean, I think you sum it up really nicely, and it really it reminds me, of course, of, of something that's deeply embedded in Chinese historiography, this idea of history as a mirror. You remember the the northern Song historian Sima Guang, uh, he titled his most famous work A Comprehensive Mirror to Aid in Government. Uh, and, and there's that famous saying by the great Tang emperor, I got to go to the Tang, of course, Li Shimin or Tang Taizong, commemorating the passing of his great historian, which goes something like, you know, with a bronze mirror, you can rectify your dress. With humanity as a mirror, you can discern right and wrong. And with history as a mirror, one can grasp the great patterns or, I mean, the, the vicissitudes, the rises and the falls of nations. Uh, now, obviously, this, this idea is not unique to Chinese historiography or to Chinese culture, uh, but it does seem to be an idea that you embrace. Is is that fair to say? Yeah, it is. And I mean, when we, so when I was first approached about maybe doing a column like this, uh, which was a little over two years ago, um, we, we needed a name for it. And one of the names that that I thought about losing was a comprehensive mirror. I was, I think, correctly advised out of that for reasons of clarity and also uh, pretentiousness, that if I'm going to start comparing myself to Sima Guang, then I, I really have bigger problems than getting meeting my deadlines. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, for sure, I think that there's a real 
need to understand the past um, and apply it to the present. But I think, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about this, you know, there are limits and limitations to how, how one does that. Um, and that's something that I've really tried to grapple with. And, and I, I think that there's a mixture of motivations. One of them is to find, is to use history as a mirror and hold it up to the present. I'm not above a little just uh, entertainment and, and trying to, you know, now it can be told sort of columns once in a while, but more often it's about trying to apply what historians have, have learned and gleaned from their work in the archives and sometimes from my own work in the archives and trying to bring it out to the public in ways that I think are not simply for the sake of understanding a particular event in the past, but for understanding a particular event in the past so that we can better make sense of the the, the fabulous times in which we find ourselves these days. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's 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 the mission, and I think you, you do a fantastic job of that. And of course, I do like those, you know, once in a while you take a break from the more overtly pedagogical stuff, and it's just some fun stories from the past that, as you say, need to be retold. Maybe it's just that I tend to notice them more and maybe invite them onto my show more often, but my distinct sense is that the people who are working on this, this broader enterprise, who are trying to, you know, move away from, you know, ivory tower isolation and out into the, the more popular discourse, into media, into the conversation on China, uh, we're winning. I mean, it's becoming more, more, more common. Is is that your sense? Uh, well, we need to win something these days. Um, so I think... It's interesting this is coming this conversation is happening this particular moment. So the New York Times right now is embroiled in a war over their their coverage about Haiti. There's a story on on the the indemnity that that uh, France charged to Haiti for its independence. Right. The double debt. Yeah. And so there's a big fight going on on Twitter in particular um between historians and journalists which which I find really frustrating because I I I really think that done well um, history and journalism are trying to accomplish a lot of the same goals. They're not identical, obviously, but a lot of the same goals. With that, and somebody made the comment that I thought was insightful, and I can't remember who it was. So my apologies to you, whoever you are, um, is that academics are likely to cite you but not read you, and journalists are likely to read you but not cite you. Um, <laughs> but but whether that's the case or not, I do think that the shared goal of trying to bring knowledge and insight to a broader public is something that that both journalists and historians ought to embrace. And it's certainly something that I find myself trying to do with, with this column. And, I, and you mentioned the National Committee. I think that that's one of the real goals of the National Committee's, the Public Intellectuals Program, is trying to, trying to get responsible academics into conversation with journalists and policymakers and, and business folk and people who are making decisions so that we can make informed decisions about, about the economy and policy and defense and and just every everything everything that human beings do. That's right. The Haiti kerfuffle, of course, is not the first time that the New York Times has run something historical that's caused a lot of historians to push back. You know, the the sixteen nineteen project, Nicole Hannah Jones, and all of the the criticism that she's come under. I, I hate to credit social media with anything, but I can't help but think that in some ways it has definitely helped to bring academics into this broader discourse. And, and, you know, once in a while in that, that wretched place they call China Twitter, you see the same sorts of skirmishes break out here. But, I'm, you know, you're the guy who's always sort of saying, can't we all just get along? Maybe I'm just, um, you know, it's a pathologically conflict diverse. I don't know. Um, no, I think that the, <laughs> the opportunities for making connections on Twitter are its great virtue. 
I mean, so yes, there are certainly trolls and pedants and things get ugly a lot of the time, but, but I've made a ton of connections with folks that I just, it's unlikely I ever would have met them were it not, were it not for Twitter. And it has to do with China Twitter, but not just that it's across the, across the range. And it's part of the same impetus that I think drives the column, which is trying to, trying to share knowledge and to move things forward in ways that are productive for, for everyone. Yeah, I, I don't see you embroiled in a lot of controversy on Twitter. I don't know what you're doing right, but you're doing something right. <laughs> uh, let, let's talk about how you actually keep this thing up. I mean, I've had columns before monthly once, and it always feels like the deadline's already on me. You put something out, like a twelve to 1,500 word piece every week, and it, it covers just an enormous you know, t- time scale. I mean, do you have some kind of like master timeline that allows you to just find events that correspond to a particular Gregorian calendar date? I mean... Because some of the stuff you pick is not exactly common knowledge, even to, you know, pretty well-trained-up China historians. I, I mean, I know about stuff like the, you know, the Wang Kongchang explosion, which was the topic of your most recent column, um, you know, last week's column. But I, I couldn't have even told you the year that it took place. It was 1626, but I wouldn't have known that. I, I might have gotten the decade right, but not the month and the day. I mean... Is this stuff that's just sort of in your head already, or do you have the secret Jay Carter master timeline thing? Yeah, I've never, you know, I've never done any research at all. I just, it's just days. I just, it occurs to me that every day must, <laughs> this is what it is. No, I, you know, most of these, I mean, first of all, dates are, are pretty arbitrary, right? I mean, things happen in the past and I mean, never mind the converting between the traditional Chinese dating system and dynastic dating imperial reign titles on into into contemporary, you know, Western style solar dates, um, and Gregorian, Julian, converting all these things. Never mind about that. Um, the significance of one particular date are pretty, they're pretty fudgeable for the most part. I mean, there are certain yeah, things yeah. that happened at a certain day that you can put them in. Um, in terms of a, okay, so in terms of process, it works something like this. So I began with a few, I mean, beginning in the summer 2020, completely well not as different i guess as we we might have thought but anyway beginning of the summer of 2020 of course there's some obvious dates that you want to bring in you might work around august 1st and the the pla or of course there's may 4th and there's june 4th and there's um you know double 10 i mean there's there's obvious dates i kind of shied away from doing obvious dates as much as i could hmm. not because right. they weren't important um in fact the very first column was on was on june 4th of of, two, of 2020 but i try to i try to get at things through the through the side door maybe because i think it mm. it my, my goal really isn't to say people here's something that you never knew happened my goal is more often to say here's here's an interesting hook and now let's take that hook to hopefully entertain you a little bit with with the events of of the past and but then connect them to the present in a way that can help us think about the present a little bit differently and i find that if I take a really obvious event or process or personality that everybody knows, they're going to come to that with a lot of preconceived notions, and that can make it more challenging to try and get a point across in 1,200 words. Now, it is true that sometimes I try, I mean, myth-busting is a, is a terrible term, but I, sometimes I try to challenge the conventional wisdom on a particular event. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, other, but most often, it's trying to find an event that is going to allow me to hook it to a particular date, but as I just said, the date is arbitrary. It's really about the events and, and the bigger themes and trying to find connections to them. Um, so anyway, I find those in a lot of different sources. I mean, 
the internet, obviously you can like, just Google around looking for particular dates, but I've got, you know, look, thumbing through books and textbooks, monographs, different chronologies. A lot of books have a chronology and they're focused on different themes. So I just honestly mm. spend just a lot of time thumbing through these books or browsing through web pages and jotting things down. And then what happens is I put them into a spreadsheet and it's not actually a spreadsheet because I'm not that sophisticated. It's a, it's just a word doc that has a table on it, which is terrible. And I need to change that. <laughs> so then I find once I've mapped things off up and I put them into a grid. So I find out what the particular date's going to be, or it's a week. So it doesn't have to be precise date. So it's almost right. within a week. Then I put those down and I start to research them a little bit. And then it comes up. Is there a ton of stuff? Is there a ton of stuff available or is there nothing available? If there's nothing I'm not likely to do that because I'm not in a position to do a lot of primary research on these. Just don't know. But sometimes you are. I mean, sometimes there's really not much stuff at all. I mean, I'm thinking of one column in particular that had, I remember it really well. It had me scratching my head thinking, how the hell does Jay know this? And and how can he possibly keep this column going? It was about a murder that took place in 1870 of a Qing official named Ma Xinyi, who was a provincial governor, kind of a, you know, a Li Hongzhang kind or a Zeng Guofan kind of of, uh, you know, fighting the Taipings kind of a local elite. And, uh, he got, he got knifed in, in 1870 and nobody exactly knows why. And there's all sorts of fun speculation. But I get to the end of the column thinking, why have I never read about this guy? And, you know, you, you, you end up at the end saying there, there are very few English sources on him. There's like a page on him in ECCP in, um, Eminent Chinese of the Qing period, uh, which is yeah. a great, oh, by the way, I, I picked up a copy of that. Uh, in at the Panjiayuan Market in like 1997 or something like that. Uh, it's it's one of my prized possessions. It was unbelievable. Anyway, um, how how did you come to know about Ma? What kind of research did you? How did you source? You know, because what you've got in there is way beyond what's in the ECCP. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny you picked that one because that that is one of the relatively few. I tend to there, there weren't many sources in English. The fun thing about that one is that there's a it's been made into a couple of movies. Um, most recently, one one starring Jet Li and Andy Lau. Um, so I, so got to I was going to ask, that. was that the was that the inspiration for the column? No, it was the other way around. I actually oh, I okay, actually okay. found out about it and I said, oh, I can watch a movie. Um, it, and it worked together. Um, that was one that once I got once I got a hold of the date and and once I started looking, I mean, googling around in Chinese with some of the had the it's one of the what four great mysteries of the late Qing, which is a very funny uh-huh. yeah, um, yeah. little label for it. But anyway, I was able to look through it. And yes, there are, there's enough in Chinese that, that I could find and put it together into, into a story. Um, so that was one where I did, it wasn't really primary source research, but it was, I mean, with secondary research, it happened to be in Chinese. Um, but that was, um, again, I'm not going into, when I say not primary research, I'm not going into archives for the most part, for the most right, part. Right, right. The other example I would be of that would be, like Emily Malcross's book on the Peking Gazette. I came across that book when I was doing the column on the 100 days of 1898. And I used that to then go into the Peking Gazette and do a little research into kind of how the, how the paper, how that, that paper, newspaper, for lack of a better word, was used. So there are some cases where I've done some primary source research, but more often I'm trying to engage with secondary literature, partly because that's more accessible to me to do things on a weekly schedule, but also because that can, I can share that with readers as a means of getting them to understand uh, more about the topic if they want to. Oh yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, you just, now you mentioned archives and um, 
it strikes me that once in a while you take on a column that has a kind of obvious moral object lesson in it, and the story itself isn't necessarily important, but uh, you use it to get at something you want you want to you want to say about um, you know problems that we face in in the world today. One of them that that comes to mind immediately is about a fight between two neighbors that took place in 1720, a guy named Rui Meisheng and a guy named Rui Mian. Uh, it results in the the rather ignominious death of the latter, Mr. Mr. Ray. Uh, it involves him getting clobbered with a beam from a collapsed outhouse that collapses because, you know, during the fight when the whole thing is kind of slapstick but tragic, but of no historical consequence, except that you make the point that the archives are getting harder to access and this sort of thing is only accessible through these these sorts of archival uh, resources that a lot of resource you know researchers into into Ming and Qing history used to have fairly easy access to but aren't now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that column is one of um, so in the top. I did a top eight to commemorate um, having done this for two years, and that was one of them I chose, and that's for exactly the reason that you put forward. So the the process of that leads exactly to the point. So uh, there's a book by Robert Hagel, who edited it called True Crimes in 18th Century China. Right. right so it was, right. it was truly a, a book that I just came across as I was realizing that, I mean, after about a month or two, it became clear that, okay, this is going to be a lot of work to, if I'm going to, if I want to keep this up and I was enjoying writing it tremendously. So if I want to keep this up, I'm going to need an inventory of, of dates that I'm going to come up with. So these True Crimes in 18th Century China, this was I just was able to go through them and I, I've used, I think, only one or two of them, but I've got more of them at the ready as, as time goes All on. Right. But the but the point of that book is, and it's and it's terrific, and with translations from some really well-known and, and really excellent scholars, uh, is that's going into the, the Qing archives and bringing out these legal cases. And, and anybody who's worked in Chinese history very much knows that the, the legal archives are remarkable sources for getting at the lives of people, not just in the in the legal system, but people who come into contact with the legal system. That was how the book, which we may talk about later, uh, The Death of Woman Wong by Jonathan Spence, really relies on the judicial system as a means of getting at the the life and death of this of this uh, this poor woman in the in the Ming or in the early Qing. So, anyway, back to the crimes in the eighteenth century. The point of that book, in a lot of ways, is the archives themselves. And that's right. something that I'm just acutely aware. And in 2020, I became acutely aware of it. I was planning to go to China, like many of us, in the spring of 2020. That didn't happen. I've not been back. And it, you know, when I'm going to get back is really unclear. But even before China had uh, shut down for epidemiological reasons and travel just around the world had, had become unfe- infeasible, the archives in China had already started, had started, started closing down and closing up. Um, so that people weren't able to get access. That was particularly the case for foreign scholars, but not not only for foreign scholars. Chinese scholars having a lot of the same the same challenges. So the point of that column was, yeah, I wanted to could titillate a little bit with you know the outhouse murder and somebody killing his neighbor because his the location of his outhouse was stinking up the entrance to his house. But that's obviously kind of trivial in the grand scheme of things. But the the more profound story is the one about the the loss of access to those kinds of stories and the kinds of information that scholars use to study and understand the past. Yeah. I was looking at the way we titled that, and uh, I, I think 
you should have pushed back a little bit. I think, you know, it, it made it sound like the archives are being erased. Their access to them is being restricted. They're not actually being erased. Often they're being digitized, which ideally is going to make them more accessible in the future. But uh, Ideally, you know, that's another, that's a whole other conversation. In fact, I think there's probably been a, a show on that. Yeah. The challenges of the, the digital archives is, yes, they're much more accessible. I can access stuff in New Jersey that I couldn't, you know, I would have, would have had to go to Beijing before or to Nanjing or someplace else. But also there are, it's definitely the case that there are people who did arch- work in the, in the physical archive. And then years later, they go back to look at the digitized archive and what they had consulted in the past is no longer there. Um, there's no uh, indication that it's gone. It's just not simply there anymore. Now there's, right. you can choose whether that's malice or incompetence, but there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's not a one-to-one correspondence. Right, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, just now you mentioned Jonathan Spence's book, The Death of Woman Wong. Uh, Spence, who passed away, I think it was in December, yeah, it was on Christmas Day of, of 2021, and whose life you actually commemorated in one of, I thought was one of your best columns, uh, The Death of Woman Wong and the Life of Jonathan Spence. Um, you studied under Spence, and uh, I'd love to hear you talk about his impact on you, but I'm also curious to know your thoughts about those aspects of Spence that are more controversial, things like, you know, his insertion of imagination, his, his sort of, um, I mean, I, as you talk about in the, the column, in The Death of Woman Wong, there are a number of pages where he sort of puts himself into, you know, he channels her, he, he speaks in her voice. He does the same thing for a whole book. Uh, in first person, Emperor of China, self-portrait of Kangxi, which I think is one of his best, but it's controversial. And maybe we can circle back after we talk about those those things to the other sort of access points that Spence uses in putting together the Death of Woman Wong that he recommends to us as historians uh, who who are looking for ways in. So he talked about uh, markets, for example, uh, you know the, the records of, of of markets, which bring people together from different uh, strata, from different villages and different communities, a few times a week, sometimes in in busier places. And he talked about uh, the legal system, which of course he draws on very heavily for the death of woman Wong, but also famine, records of famine, which also play in to that book because there is a famine in the part of Shandong where she lives uh, in in the years before the book's events take place. But uh, so, yeah, riff on Spence for me. Um, well, studying with Jonathan Spence was uh, was just a, a privilege that I've, I've tried to be very aware of the privilege that 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 was. And it was and it was tremendous. Um, so learning what one of the things that I think we all all the people who studied with him learned from him was really um, the the value in following your sense of curiosity to try to find. A story that was worth telling. And I think that that's something that, I mean, the, the, the people who, I mean, Peter Carroll, who's at, at Northwestern, Ruth Rogaski um, at, at, at Vanderbilt, um, Steve Platt up in, yeah. in Massachusetts. I mean, there's, I mean, if I, I don't want to give too many of a list because then I'll leave somebody out and there's just, just the group is, is tremendous. So I think that studying with, with Jonathan was something that we all really enjoyed that freedom to explore our curiosity that can be frustrating at times because in some programs there's a particular approach and therefore you could really take a deep dive into that particular approach and you could get very specific guidance on how to accomplish these particular goals with Spence we were all kind of on our own to some extent because we all went off in different directions um, thematically chronologically geographically to to do what we were doing right i'd say what i took 
from, I mean, the reason that I wanted to study with him and, and I was not disappointed was that the ability to, to translate, to communicate from the academic enterprise into the public square. Yeah. And obviously no one can aspire to, to, uh, to, to do what he did. I mean, he was such a tremendous writer and had tremendous opportunity at a particular time. We're not at that moment anymore. Um, it's very difficult for one person to kind of be the China specialist in a sense, because we, because we've done better, the United States has done better as a society in training more people to study it. But he, he certainly had that ability to reach a tremendous audience. So I'm trying to model a little bit of that and trying to reach a broader audience than simply my peers in the academy. And just you know, lest I be clear, to, to paraphrase Lloyd Benson, like I, I studied with Jonathan Spence, I knew Jonathan Spence, I am no Jonathan Spence. Um, yeah, so I'm yeah. trying to, uh, but I am trying to follow some of what I think he would we would have, have approved of is trying to take the academic enterprise and and reach uh, and reach a broad audience in ways that are are responsible. Well, I think you'd be proud of what you're doing. I mean, it's, it's great, uh, Jay. Your column tends to skew toward the 19th and 20th centuries, which is you know only natural given your training. Uh, one question I often get is you know along lines of. Yeah, I, I get that history is important and that it still informs Chinese thinking and behavior. But do I really have to study, you know, the Wang Anshu reforms or the Anlushan rebellion or the Northern Wei dynasty or, you know, Neo-Confucian teachings of Zhu Xi and Wang Yangming uh, to understand China in the 21st century? Um, isn't it enough to maybe start where Spence starts, you know, with his, his you know, seminal, the search for modern China in the late Ming? Isn't it enough to sort of know imperial China at its apogee? And then study its fall and subsequent rise. How how do you answer that? I answer that in in two ways. So one, I the I really strive for some diversity in the column because I think that gives a a fuller portrait of of China's history. Yeah, and that includes chronology. It also includes geography. It includes theme. Um, so I try to make sure that I don't simply focus on the elite or on the the military. Um, or on the political process, I'm trying to bring in diplomacy. I'm trying to bring in questions to do with with gender and social history, cultural history. So I try to bring in these different approaches. In terms of chronology, there's simply more material that I can access on the 19th and 20th century, uh, and that's also my training. So I I know better how to get to those sources. Um, I try to get stuff from earlier on because I think it would I think it's richer if we have a mixture of things from from a broader chronological yeah, yeah, scale, yeah. but certainly more of the the lessons to bring in are uh, easier to make when you're in in more recent times. On the other hand, talking about um, you know some you know coups in the Tang Dynasty and and battles in the Northern Song, I mean that's those are always good good um, good stories to tell. But I think it's easier to tell stories that have a contemporary relevance um, if I'm if they're drawn from from time periods that have frankly, more in common with the present than than further back. The Tang Dynasty coup uh, that you're talking about was was a great one. I think I, I had the privilege of reading that one. We uh, we used to f- sort of fight with me and the other people who read. Uh, now your, yours is, it's, your column's been sort of monopolized by John Van Fleet, John D. Van Fleet, who's one of our best readers. He's got this nice rich baritone. Are you, are you enjoying those readings that, that we're doing for uh, China Stories? Yeah. I am, and I, he... He, 
Yeah, he 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 leans into the to the presentation in a way I'd really admire. I mean, I read I read a couple of them, and um, and it was, and I, I don't think I was able. I think I'm more self conscious reading my own words, um, probably. Uh, um, but I'm really glad to have to hear other people reading them. I've heard you read a few. I've heard Elise Ribbon read at least one. Yeah, um, yeah. And um, uh, and then John is reading them. Yeah. yeah, he's read all. He's as far as I know, he's read all of them for the past. Yeah, he's he's several months. At least. You know, I mean, he's doing it for free. I mean, we got to reward him with something, and uh, it's it's a real. I mean, we all kind of like I said, you know, yours is sort of the prestige one to read. It's just the right length. It's always interesting. It's just so fun to, to read those. I know that you you mentioned it, but you only flicked at it and you kind of glossed over it. But I think it's really important that we should we should drill down a little bit on this. You do approach all of these topics from a, a bunch of different angles. A, a, you, know, you you take on a, a diverse set of lenses. You know, like you said, military or diplomatic or political or economic, but also a lot of social history, um, a lot of feminist history. I'm thinking about like the Tang Chunyin column that you did about the suffrage act- activists. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Republican Revolution, um, you know, you've 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 done history told from subaltern perspectives. Can you talk a little bit more about that approach? Uh, do you approach an event maybe like a golfer looking where the ball lies and then picking the right club out of his bag, or do you set out with a a particular flavor of history already in mind and then sort of I'm going to do a feminist or I'm going to do a, a a kind of subaltern history. And then find the right thing. I feel like asking um, a songwriter about: Do you write the lyrics first, or, or the <laughs> melodies, or the chord progressions? But yeah. um, I, you know, I, you, that's a sensitive subject because I really wish that I could I could write songs. Um, I okay. So it's, again, this notion of diversity comes up quite a bit because if I find that I've if three weeks out of four I've written about a battle, then it's like okay, we got to we got to get out of the we got to get out of out of war for a little bit. Um, right. So try to find something different theme. And that can be a challenge because even though I said earlier that dates are kind of arbitrary, um, you're still, there are certain dates that are there. Like you can't simply make something up. So it may be that I'm looking at a particular date and I've got four choices and they're all treaties or battles or politicians. Like that, <laughs> then sometimes I need to dig a little deeper on those. Um, yeah. But in terms of how to approach it with a theme. So uh, those, that one that you mentioned, and then one I would bring in. So for instance, the one on the, on suffrage, um, that one, I really wanted to bring that in because I feel like there's a a conceit in the in the West, you know, capital key T, capital W, um, in the West that that these issues, kind of more progressive issues, and and enfranchising women are, are things that that the West has done better than other places, and and I think that you know, first of all, it's not true, and second of all, I think you can find the evidence of it, and so the idea that in in 1912, that you had women protesting, many of them armed, um, you know, taking over the the uh, the Republican Parliament in Nanjing, um, where they're trying to make the new constitution for the for the republic, because they'd been promised, or they had been, depending on who you talk to, but certainly suffrage for women was on the platform, and then it got yeah, removed yeah. because people felt that. Uh, some of the male politicians, male leaders felt that this is, you know, this is going to compromise their message. It was going to be too radical to use today's terminology. And so they took it out and, and this protest came in. And I think that's something that I, I don't, I don't think that a lot of Western readers think, think of in the case, not, not only about that 
women's suffrage was being debated in China in 1912. I mean, historians and people are familiar with the story know this, but I think the broader readers don't. Um, but also that I think this notion of of protest in that context isn't something that that I think the popular imagination in the West, I think, assigns less agency to to Chinese actors. And I think the notion that when this came down, that there weren't women weren't going to have the right to vote, that people t- literally took up arms and charged the, <laughs> the parliament to try and change it. I, I think that's a story that feels very modern and very Western. And yet it's, you know, it's from 1912 in, in Nanjing. So I think that's, that's the way I got to that one. Um, one that's related. You said there was another about, one you wanted to, yeah. Yeah. The subaltern approach. So one of the very early ones I did was on Matteo Ricci and teaching at a Jesuit university. Matteo Ricci gets a lot of play. And I think Matteo Ricci is a really fascinating character. But as I started researching that one, one of the things I found was the involvement of the Jesuits and the Catholic church in the, in the slave trade. Um, hmm. And, and yeah. Macau um, was one of the real centers of, of the slave trade. And so I wound up writing that one. Again, this is one of these episodes where a lot of people are familiar with Matteo Ricci and he's the, you know, he goes to Beijing and uh, right around 1600 and is one of the, the people who establishes the Jesuit mission in China. But the role of the of the church in in the slave trade at a time that I was when race was so much at the center of the of the public discussion in the United States, I was I was pleased that I was able to tie these things together in a way that was could be topical um, in the sense that it was a theme that was on the minds, it was likely to be on the minds of many readers, but it was also um, adding something historical to the debate that people might not have been familiar with before. That was a particularly good one, I thought, yeah. Another thing that I really love about your column is that you'll often highlight the work of a particular scholar, sometimes more than one, on a given topic or an era or an event. And it, it's it's really generous and also super useful. Uh, and I, I love that you started to include kind of a little bibliography sources at the end. Um, is it, again, this is another one of those songwriting questions. Is it the book first, then the column? Or do you start the column, then go to your stacks and f- find the right books? Or how does it's that work? Both. It's both, yeah. and it depends. I mean, sometimes there's an event that I will find, and then I need to go find books about it. And ideally, like probably the, the hardest cop we've, we've talked about this in other contexts, um, the May 4th column might have been the hardest one to write. Because, I mean, I could sit down and write a lecture on the May 4th movement pretty easily. I mean, and I have, in fact, you know, many times, but it wouldn't be that useful as a column. I think the the way to do it would be to bring in some angle. And so trying to bring scholarship into it or a particular way of looking at the events that add to what we already know. So in those cases, there's an event and I go and I find scholarship on it. In other cases, a book comes across my desk, either literally or metaphorically, and I think this is something I need to write about. And those are the most fun columns for me to do. Like if I get a book that is important or interesting to me or both, and I'll just thumb through it looking for a date, looking for something that happens on a particular date. And if it's something that can be described in an entertaining paragraph, then I'll usually pick that as the hook for the column and then build out of it in that way. So sometimes I start with a book and build out of it. And other times I start with an event and look for scholarship. Jay, do you ever feel limited by the need to pin the topic to a date? I mean, it makes it hard to talk about, you know, bigger, longer term historical shifts taking place across decades or even centuries, right? I mean, 
we're all aware, for example, of, you know, the Naito hypothesis about the real importance of the Tang to Sung transition starting, you know, the mid-century, the mid-8th century, all the way into the 11th century about China sliding from, you know, medieval into early modern, as, as he, he argued. But that's not something you could pin a date on or, I mean, not even a, a decade on. It would be impossible, let alone a, a single week, you know, like you're charged. So do you sometimes find it limiting that you're unable to drift too far from, you know, where you've dropped your anchor over a specific event? You're tethered to that. Not not usually because mm-hmm. if – so the, the, the big theme you're talking about, and I remember – um, I remember first talking about this in, in graduate school. I'm um, talking about the the, the northern strand um, in in China's history. So the the idea that conventional Chinese traditional Chinese historiography, you know, talks about China, and it, once in a while these northern barbarians would drop down and conquer it. But looked at it from a different perspective, the, the anomaly was when you had a, a dynasty like the Ming, that what in fact was for the most part a Han Chinese dynasty. Um, right. So that that's a big interesting historiographical shift and and theme that I can talk about, all you need to do is find a, a particular date, an event that happens that illustrates, for instance, something with the with the Jin or with the Liao and how some of the, this, you know, one of the, one of the several sieges of Kaifeng, you can always write yeah, about. Yeah, you did one of this, to, like to dip the, into. In the 1125 siege of Kaifeng. And I think also right. there's a 1226, I want to say, but there's another, I've, I've, the siege of Kaifeng has come up a couple of times. Um, right, that's and, the Mongol siege of Kaifeng is in the 1220s, right? Yes. So they both, yeah. they both come up in columns. So sieges of Kaifeng. Um, that's one of the, <laughs> yeah, so they're. Kaifeng's a very useful city to use. Yeah. I'll pin all sorts of stuff is, on that one. My dad was born there. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, so usually there's a hook. Usually you can find a hook to enable you to get into a bigger theme if you want to, if I want to. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense, and um, I think you've you've done a really really good job of of doing that. You were an academic historian, you still are. I don't know how much you're teaching now, but you've got an administrative load. I mean, does this column still sort of add some uh, keep you anchored in in a, a sense to your your academic identity? So what I've what I have like I, I'm really outing myself as an administrator coming on the on the show. Um, you know, I think that. When I started writing this, um, I was so Champions Day had had just was just coming out. It was either a couple of weeks before or a couple of weeks after the public official publication date. Um, right. I was looking for a way to engage with the public as a means of promoting the the book, and and I, I had done some public writing in different forums. So when I got asked to do this, it it felt very familiar because it was something that I had been been doing, and frankly, it was the you know it was a it was a different skill set than doing academic writing where I would sit down right, and I would right, pour right. through a lot of documents and then put it together. And I would write in a language that was accessible to my peers, but wouldn't, wasn't necessarily as accessible to the, to the general public. Um, since that time, you know, I, I got appointed as a, as an interim Dean and now I'm just a regular old Dean. Um, so I'm not teaching, I may teach a class on modern China next spring, but I'm not teaching and I'm not really getting much chance to do academic writing. So this is now the most intellectual thing that that I do. I spend more time with, uh, you know, teaching loads and managing stipends and evaluating uh, assessment tools. Um, I make time to do this because I I enjoy it so much. And what I've said from the start is this was both more work than I thought it would be, um, and also a lot more rewarding than I than I thought it would be. And so I don't I don't want to I don't want to give it up for that reason. 
Yeah, no, I, we certainly don't want you to give it up. I don't know if you know this, but yours is one of the most read things every damned week on, on SubChina. So uh, don't ask for more money, but... <laughs> <laughs> well, it is... Um, no, it's a pleasure. And I hear from people who read the column and once in a while uh, with either corrections or, or challenges, oftentimes with congratulations and, and thanks, um, and other times just kind of wanting to know more information about it. And even sometimes with suggestions for ideas for future, for future columns. So I really, it, that makes, that's really rewarding. I mean, people who are listening, who are academics will know that when you, you put something out there, the idea that someone reads it is always a little bit mind blowing. <laughs> um, so the idea that there, you know, that there are more than five people reading it is, uh, is, is a little intimidating, but very gratifying when I hear from them. Well, Jay, I saved what I think is really the big question for last. And it's something we flicked at really early on, but it's the question of how much history actually matters to our understanding of China's behavior as a state actor or, or even to our understanding of the you know, kind of the mental furniture of ordinary Chinese folks or of Chinese elites. This is part of an even bigger question, you might say, which is you know, probably my very favorite topic of conversation with anyone in the field, which is, you know, how much does all that stuff matter? The language, the the myths and metaphors, the, the social structures, the political institutions, the, you know, even like pedagogical traditions or, or toilet training or, you know, socialization. This stuff has all been written about in different contexts. Um, the geography, the climate, agricultural practices. I mean, you could go on and on and on. Um, but just sticking with history, your column often, uh, not always, but often makes kind of an explicit connection from the past to the present, as we've talked about. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's a quite distant past to the present. T to some extent, as you, you probably well know, I mean, it's kind of a, a parlor game that anyone who's kind of had training in, in, in Chinese history kind of likes to pull out, uh, where, you know, you show them how, hey, this is actually just old wine in new bottles or new wine in old bottles or whatever. You, you, you invoke some clever historical analogies we always do this. Uh, we we draw our attention to the the historical rhymes, or um, you know, to the I, I, Howard French used a really good um, cultural reflexes or historical reflexes is what he called it in, in one of his books. Uh, I, I've said this before on this program many times. On the one hand, it's just blindingly obvious that there's something to it that the history does matter, that it's relevant, uh, that it's a clear factor in shaping whatever the thing in the present that we're observing and commenting on. Uh, but we've seen people take it way too far, right? And we've certainly seen that, you know, when the, the mystic knowledge stuff or the, the stuff that, you know, the people who see it as, you know, cyclical or whatever. But on the other hand, if you, if you lard it up with too much throat clearing and, and too many caveats, you end up, you know, sapping it of a, a good analogy of all its force, right? So how would you describe the approach that you take in trying to thread this needle, in, in trying to, you know, steer in this kind of treacherous strait between the, you know, essentialism on the one hand and just sort of ahistoricism on the other? Um, do you have a rule of thumb? Yeah, you know, I tried to think of some rules of thumb and and it was difficult and and there you brought up a couple of things in what you were just asking so so one in terms of why history matters or how much history matters i mean i remember and this is this is something that will resonate with a lot of listeners you know i was when i was doing dissertation research so in the mid 90s 
and my advisor, this is in Harbin, and um, he would, we were talking about Taiwan and, and trying to make the point they said, well, what, how important is it? Like, why, why is it so important? What happens in Taiwan? Like, why is that such a, a big deal to people in, in, in China, in the mainland? And, and he said, well, you have to understand that the, the, as an American, you're living in a country that for the last couple hundred years has kept on getting bigger. And in China, we lived in a country that for a couple hundred years has kept getting smaller. And so mm. it represents a, a threat that is, is psychologically really powerful and, and has a big impact. So that wasn't because, now this isn't to say what he's saying is true or false, is it that it was the history mattered. So in some sense, understanding these stories from the past inform how people think about the present. And that's why I think that any historian who's really trying to communicate uh, about their field will say that, you know, history and the past are not the same thing, right? The past right. happened, history is how we write about it. So that's one thing about why history matters because it influences how people think about the present. Your other question, though, about how I approach applying historical lessons to the present and kind of historical analogy, um, that's really, it is really fraught because I think you need to do two things. And if you go in either, well, you need to avoid two pitfalls. And if you veer off off the course, um, you'll fall into one of two traps. And there's probably other traps, but I'll start with those two. So one is that you try to be overly specific. Things fall apart very quickly. So people mm. will talk about, you know, this is Xi Jinping is being the same as Mao and, and they'll point to some, something that's going on and people say, well, no, it's different than Mao because I mean, because obviously Mao did had different policies than Xi Jinping does. And so if you try to apply the very specific, um, very specific examples in a historical analogy, it breaks down because it's overly specific and doesn't apply to the present. On the other right. hand, if you say, well, Xi Jinping is the same as Mao because he's the leader of China and he's really powerful and influential, it's like, well, that's so vague as to be completely uninteresting. Right. So right. trying to trying to steer in between being overly specific in a way that's grounded to a particular time and place and therefore is not relevant to the present, or trying to be too vague in a way that every single thing that happened in the past has some relevance to the present because I'm a human being and I breathe and eat and drink. <laughs> That's also that I'm not the same as the other human beings who have done those things. So I think that the best way that I can, and this is a little bit of a cop out, but the best way that I can try to navigate between those pitfalls is to say, is kind of present some information, make some observations about it, but stop short of driving, driving home the nail all the way, because that leaves mm. the, that leaves the reader some latitude to make some inferences um, and make some of their own decisions. And frankly, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm writing the column, but I don't have all the answers and my experience and my understanding is going to differ from the experience and context and understanding of, of readers. There's lots of readers who are, I mean, many of the readers are, are Americans, but many of them are not. And so they're coming from a different, many are younger than I am, many are older than I am. Um, they're coming from different experience of, of, of social context and they're looking at it. They're going to come to a different conclusion about what I've said than, than I might try to. So I think by trying not to put too fine a point on it, I think it becomes more accessible to, to more people. Yeah. I think that's, that's really well put. I think when it comes right down to it, it's just about the accretion of experience and intuition, I suppose. And, and even dare I say wisdom, right? Uh, I don't know if I'll cop to wisdom. <laughs> well, Jay, 
my God, what what an amazing two years! And what, what I thank you from the bottom of my heart for your contributions to Sub China. Uh, I look forward to reading your column every single week, and uh, you always manage to surprise me. It's great. Um, well, it, it, I, it's a cliche to say the pleasure is mine, but it really is. I, I really have enjoyed the opportunity, and um, I'm surprised myself a little bit. Um, I'm, I didn't know that how long I thought this would keep up, but it. Uh, I, I look forward to I look forward to writing it. And I look forward to uh, to surprising you some more. All right. I can't wait. Uh, let's move on to recommendations. But first, I want to remind everyone that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. And if you like the work that we do with Seneca and with the other shows in the network, the very best thing that you can do to support us is subscribe to SupChina. Uh, subscribe to our access newsletter. Uh, it's really, really great stuff. It's affordable and deeply informative. A uh, very high quality product that I am very proud of. <laughs> anyway, Jay, on to recommendations. What do you have for us this week? This is a bit of a cop out, but my recommendation, and this comes with lots of caveats because everybody's in a different situation and has different um, different situation and different priorities. But if you're able, um, my recommendation is to go to see the performing arts in person. Um, because it is uh, truly something. Zoom is terrific, but it is uh, something that um, I'm just reminded to. So I've had the the good fortune to see. Um, so two specific recommendations within that would be Hades Town, um, and we talked oh, about this a little bit. That is such yeah. a terrific show, um, and I, was I able love to see that it show so much on Broadway. But also, I know the touring company. I know people who saw it in Philadelphia and some other places, and apparently, the touring company was uh, was just as good in some in some instances better. Um, wow. So, so Hades Town is my one recommendation. The other recommendation, and I'll just maybe this will surprise you, but I would, if you're in the greater New York City area, um, get to the New York City Ballet because they do some really fabulous work. And unlike many of the high arts, it's not expensive. I mean, you can pay a lot for a ticket, but you can get into the uh, you can get into Lincoln Center to see the ballet for for twenty or thirty bucks, and oh, wow. um, they do tremendous tremendous work. So all all these all these groups are struggling to get back on their feet as uh, you know, as the pandemic ebbs and flows. But those are, those are my recommendations. That those are great recommendations. I think I, my mentioned to you that my, my little brother, uh, his little production company, they, they were one of the producers of Hades town. So I have a particular connection to that show. I've seen it three times now. Uh, I, I love it. I absolutely love that show. Uh, I think I'd actually recommended before on this show, uh, the music of Anais Mitchell, who was the composer of it, who wrote, you know, this is just sort of a singer-songwriter, uh, wrote the original concept album out of which Hades Town was produced. It's a, she's amazing. Uh, she's a r- amazing voice, and uh, she's a really talented lyricist. Just, just a, a, the whole package is is great. The other thing that I see, and I say at the at the ballet, you see the the choreography and the music from Balanchine and Stravinsky, which is now. 50, 60, 70 years old and feels just so, so unbelievably contemporary. It's, it's, it's remarkable. So, well, I mean, I always tell people that Stravinsky is progressive rock or metal. I mean, it's, I mean, there's the right of spring is about the most metal thing that existed prior to 1915. Right. That's absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing. So I want to recommend uh, for my recognition that listeners sign up for an upcoming sub China event. That's also like, like your work about bridging academia and journalism, uh, the inaugural Sinologia conference, 
which is really a workshop that's put on by a terrific group of students. You'll meet the two main organizers uh, where, you know, you will hear um, five papers given uh, by young scholars who are working in, in political science or in applied history. Uh, they were selected out of quite a, a good stack of, of submissions. Uh, the theme of this year's, and we're going to do this every year, is on history and memory in contemporary China. So it also connects very much with your work, Jay. Uh, I will be moderating this thing. I'll be the discussant. It's this Friday. So uh, make sure to, to, you know, as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, hopefully on Thursday night, uh, sign up right away. But, you know, if you don't hear it in time, no big deal. It will be available for you to watch later online. It will feature a keynote from Cheng Li of Brookings. Uh, go to events.subchina.com to sign up. It starts at 8.50 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on Friday the 10th and ends about three and a half hours later. So uh, I was really, really, really impressed with the papers. Uh, this, the, the quality of work that these, these young people have produced is really very, very good. Uh, so check it out. I was very, very thought-provoking. I'm looking forward to their presentations immensely. All right. Jay, wow, what a pleasure. This is great. My pleasure is all mine. Uh, again, right? You, you said that already, man. <laughs> that really is uh, so fun to talk to you about this stuff. <laughs> all right, this was a chore. Don't make me come on again. <laughs> Jay, enjoy the rest of your weekend, man. And uh, it was really great to talk to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at SupChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care. Take care.